Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Taylor Mertens. Taylor is a United Methodist pastor in Woodbridge, Virginia. He's earned degrees from James Madison University and Duke Divinity School. He regularly posts sermons, devotionals, and other theological reflections at thinkandletthink.com. He's also a part of the Crackers and Grape Juice podcast team. And he hosts his own lectionary podcast, Strangely Warm. I give you Taylor Mertens. Taylor, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Scott. Thank you for having me. It's, it, and as we said before on our Facebook Live, this is like a comic book crossover, Strangely Warm, Synaxis, Lectionary crossover. It's like when Superman winds up in like an Iron Man comic book or something. Yeah, so if that's what we're doing, who's DC and who's Marvel? I, you know, I grew up like totally like reading comic books and like almost exclusively Marvel now I'm sort of more open. I'm not. I'm not as much of a purist. Like I kind of. There's things I like, but who doesn't like Batman? Who you know? Who doesn't like? Yeah. See, I I think like the DC film universe is pretty miserable. But I'm a huge Batman. I've read like every Batman graphic novel I could get my hands on. I'm 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 a big yeah. Batman I do. Guy, yeah. So I can be DC. Yeah. You can be either one. Yeah. Any any any. Uh, I just watched Thor Ragnarok, which was not. It wasn't bad. It wasn't uh, stellar, but it wasn't. You know. See, I'm my wife and I. We're super cheap, and we also have a toddler, so we never go to the movies anymore. We have to wait for it to be available for rent. That was that's how I streamed so. it. I mean, I streamed it. I mean, I, I downloaded it, but yeah, yeah. And it was. And I'll so, tell you, I wouldn't spend eleven dollars to see that film. Yeah, so I got to wait uh, till like the first, the second week of March until I can rent it for four ninety nine to be able to watch it. It's worth it's worth about four ninety nine divided by two for you and your wife two fifty. That's about what that film's for two fifty. It's a solid piece of film. okay. Well, then I, that's a good recommendation. And on from the God of Thunder to the God of the Decalogue. Is what we, wow, what we that was a segue. <laughs> a, what, that was good. We talk about transitions, baby. That's a transition. No, I mean, here it's interesting, right? We have, uh, for, for our third Sunday in Lent, year B, we're in beta. We have Exodus 21 through 17. This is, you know, God speaks the 10 words here, which is, you know, known in, in the sort of Hebrew tradition, that the, the 10 words, the Decalogue, the 10 commandments, popularized perhaps most recently by Roy Moore and his insistence on hanging them in the, in the courthouse. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I so uh, on the other version of the lectionary podcast for Strangely Warm, the one I host, I, I interviewed uh, Emily uh, McGowan. She's uh, uh, an Anglican deacon out in Colorado, and we were talking about the Decalogue, and it just always strikes me like whenever I hear about the Decalogue in conversation in the church, it's always about we need to get it back up in the public square. Like it's never about what they actually say, but our desire to have them up where everyone can see them. Do people need that? Like you're like, oh shoot, I thought lying with murder. I, sh- I was going to go kill this guy. Cut me off and yeah, try it's like murder. as if, oh, as wait, if we wait, have it. Wait, yeah. wait, okay. 
I, it stopped me. Yeah. Oh, oh, I, oh, that's right. It's embroidered in that uh, framed embroidery I have on my wall. That saved me from committing the sin. Um, I'm super cynical about the Ten Commandments. I mean, I, whenever I hear people go on about, you know, like a Roy Moore version of putting them up there, I always say, I'm, I will give you money to help you do it if right now you can tell me the Ten Commandments in order out loud. Either version, I'll Catholic or Protestant version. Just do it. If you can get them in order, all ten, I will give you all of my time. But I'm also a pretty bad person. So. You know the joke where Moses comes down bringing the, the, the law and says, I got good news and bad news. Well, what's the good news? Well, I got him from 400 down to 10. What's the bad news? I couldn't get adultery out. <laughs> uh, yeah. It, it is interesting, though, right? Because God speaks, I think, 10 times in Genesis 1, right? There's that God, God speaking things. And so here in Exodus, you have like the 10 words. So there is this sort of connection between somehow what's happening in Torah mm-hmm. is is connected. It, it, it's a sort of, I mean, the Bible is, is oftentimes, you know, stories of, of new creation, right? Old creation, new creation, death and resurrection. So a couple weeks ago, we had the, mo- the flood story, right? Which is mm-hmm. a sort of death and resurrection story. And here you have this, you, you have, there's a kind of death and resurrection with the slaves coming out of Egypt and there this is, and it's interesting because it's not as though God drops the commandments right while they're in Egypt and says, well, all right, work on these for a few generations. If you get and, and it if right. if you get these 10 right, I'll send you to the promise. Exactly. I mean, they're, they're actually, a res- they come after the deliverance, not before it. Mm-hmm. Do you find any of them to be, uh, um, like, is there one that stands out to you as being harder than the others? Well, I mean, I think, it's interesting because covetousness is interesting because it's so everything else is so specific, mm, right? Yeah. That's like a catch all, which it, it's the most, it's the only one that's interior, really, right? Like the other ones you have. They're all external. You can't do this to another person. Right. You, you, it requires some sort of action. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, and it's social. This is, this is personal. It seems like a catch all. And I think that's, it's, it is the most, I mean, envy is such a, it's a, such a, a coveting is such an, and then envy even, you know, it's interesting because there's this difference between like seeing somebody like perform a piano concerto that's amazing or seeing somebody at Olympics with, that does something with such sort of virtuoso and, and prowess. And you're like, man, I wish I could do that, which is different than saying, I wish they couldn't do that. You know what I mean? Which is like, we've probably all done that, right? Like, I wish they weren't so successful. It's not like I'd like to be successful like that person. It's I wish they weren't as successful because somehow their success or what they have diminishes the quality of my life. And that's where I think we're in this pernicious place. Yeah, I mean, so the Winter Winter Olympics just ended and I saw some meme where people were talking about all these these, uh, young girls are, are watching these figure skaters and they're thinking, oh, if I train, if I work hard, like I could be there one day. And there's a bunch of these middle-aged dads who are watching the curling, the gold medal, and they're like, I could do that now. <laughs> Plus, people are performance doping for curling. That's Oh my gosh, that's so crazy. That's intense. You know? I mean, maybe it's more intense than I thought. I mean, that it, it, it gave me new perspective. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, there you go. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting too, right, that, that you, there's this debate in the Reformation about whether, like, you know, everybody, both like, both sort of Protestant wings, I'm thinking like Luther Calvin, we could put Wesley sort of broadly in that kind of Reformed-ish kind of mm-hmm. family. There's this debate, like Luther thinks that the law, A, convicts us of our sin, right? Paul says, you know, before the law was, I don't have sin, right? Like, 
one command, right, in the garden. Just don't eat this. There's no other rules. I mean, really, it's a pretty big free-for-all, but that one command is the thing that, like, well, okay, I want to have this, which I'm precluded from having by the command. You know, so it, it, it teaches you your, your sin, but and also kind of restrains the flesh, right? It can be a stop sign. Like, you know, you can't make a law against avarice that would give you the or entitlement that would that would give you the motivation to steal you can make a law against stealing which might for fear of prosecution and shame and humiliation stop you doing it right and then calvin thinks that there's a third use for the law which is actually kind of it, it guides the christian life it guides the life of the redeemed and so like in the lutheran churches you'd read the law before the confession and then mm-hmm. you say we're yeah. in the tr- kind of traditional Calvinist sort of Reformation liturgies, you know, in Geneva, I think they sang the Decalogue after the confession, saying like, this is sort of what we delight in the law of the Lord kind of idea in the Psalms. Where do you come down on that here? You have any thoughts? That's on interesting that? to me because like I think about that and, and I try to think about it, like in my own context. So, you know, I'm a United Methodist pastor. And for me, like if I were to ask somebody, hey, what are some of the commandments? The response would be love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbors yourself. And as long as we do those two things, they don't. People don't really even know about or care about the Ten Commandments. Uh, even in our confession, it's mostly about wronging God and wronging neighbor. Uh, but it's not about like what we have printed that people read. We don't talk about uh, stealing or bearing false witness. It's just we have not loved God with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. Um, and so it's it's inter- interesting to me to think about the Decalogue being read as part of the liturgy, particularly when it comes to like feasting at the table. But sometimes also that is the summary of the law that's read, like just loving the Lord your God, like the way Jesus summarizes, and there are rabbinic parallels to that. And that's what's interesting too, right, in thinking about the law. I think that this is definitely true psychologically and theologically. Like the law is powerless to produce what it demands in the sense of if if what it, it demands of us is loving God and the world that God has made, you know, the creation, our neighbor, and ourselves, you can't, like you could... You could, by command, get somebody to do actions that looked like they were loving actions, but you could do, we'd all do things with all sorts of mixed, bad, weird motives, right? So, like, it, it really fulfilling the commandment isn't just the action, but the interiority. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's funny, too, because a lot, at least for the Decalogue, it's about inaction. You can't do this thing. Uh, whereas talking about, like, the fulfillment of the law through Jesus and his his sort of reinterpretation, it's about the things that you do. Uh, you do have agency in that, and, and in this, it's it's withholding one's freedom to do things. That's part of the Decalogue, and I always think that's kind of an interesting distinction. When we talk about the Ten Commandments, we're not commanded to actually do something, it's we're commanded not to do something. It's interesting. Except for, I guess, Sabbath and honoring your father and mother. Yeah, and it's interesting, if you read, like, Calvin's commentary on the Decalogue, like, it, it I mean, he actually takes it to in positive inverses like he actually you know that's how he kind of works on on the commitments like looking not just at their prohibitions but what the correlative is in living mm-hmm, a life of love mm-hmm. one two three four five six seven eight nine one. it's the ten crack commandments let's move on to first corinthians one verses 18 through 25. Whenever people say we got to get back to being New Testament Christians, I always say, be careful because you could become the Corinthian. Mm. Right? Yeah. They're not necessarily the best. Um, yeah. Which, which of Paul's churches do we want to be? You want to be who? I who, mean, who, being the Corinthian church would be fun. They got to do whatever they wanted. They, had, they were having yeah. crazy sex and eating with whoever they wanted. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's the fun. Yeah. I mean, that's the fun one. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's the Las Vegas of the churches. Yeah, it's like the Corinthians. You want to do it your way, God's way, or the fun way. You, Scott, you and I should write a book where we reinterpret uh, Paul, the the Pauline epistles, and instead of using the actual biblical um, geographic areas, we write we rewrite them for cities in America. That would be good. We should totally do that. We should totally do that. Right, there we go. Okay, copyright that. Send that to Tony Jones at, take, at Fortress take, Press, and no one take takes it, our idea. Take, yeah, take it on Facebook Live and then start back up again. All right, so let's talk about First Corinthians one. Yeah, it's interesting too because Paul starts this letter calling them the saints at Corinth, you know, and says they have mm-hmm. all they need in Christ. So, I mean, the opening, even though, it's funny too because First Corinthians thirteen is read at weddings a lot, right? And it's funny because in that chapter, Paul is saying. You know, love is patient, love is kind, everybody's getting all sentimental. He's actually making a list of all the things. He, he accuses them of not being all of those things in the first 12 chapters. They're not patient, they're not kind, they're self-seeking, mm-hmm. they, they don't delight in the truth. Like, it's very, it's so, it's just very, like, when that's read at weddings, I, I always kind of snicker. I'm like, this is... Yeah, I have a very, I mean, every time I do premarital counseling with a couple, I'm very straight up i will i will preach on just about any text from scripture i will not preach from first corinthians 13 like if, if that's if you have to have that scripture you're going to have to pick a di- different person to do it because i'm not love ain't enough have they ever said okay we'll take somebody different no everyone's like okay we'll find something else because there's like you know 500 other verses that's about true. love that's true uh that's that one's just so cliche i'm i'm so tired of i it. always try to preach on genesis um it's 29 where jacob wakes up no, oh, next to the wrong yeah, woman. And I would say, well, this is every marriage. You eventually you wake up like, like this isn't the person I married. Yeah, that's that's the Howarwasian read. That's yeah. good. I got, but yeah, it's in I making for space for Leah that the Redeemer's born because Jesus comes from Leah's womb, not Rachel's womb. Mm-hmm. So it's to the degree to which yeah. makes space for the shadow that Grace is born in the womb of the marriage. So there you go. That's my yeah. one wedding sermon. You just heard it. Yeah, there it is. But back to the Corinthians, it's interesting because you have the sense that. The message of the cross, he says, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. That's that's interesting, you know, like, right, like, the sense that if you are in relationship to the the one-way love of God poured out in Christ, then the cross means something different. Yeah. But if it's if you're not, it looks absurd. And I mean, I think of that one, is it the second century piece of graffiti that they found in somewhere in Rome where it's the slave bowing down before a jackass on a, like, like somebody crucified mm. with a jackass head. And that's sort of their commentary on the early Christians. This, like who worships? And it's just interesting in Lent. And, well, in all the church here, we have crosses over. It would be interesting if just for a season you, we put like an electric chair in the place of the cross. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me, let me talk about this for a second. I, I'm all about, you know, making my people upset on Sunday morning and, uh, I love I that. So By the t- way, your children's sermon you talked about a couple weeks ago. I, I would pay, I would have put hundreds of dollars. The one where you tell you, you, you I, I uh, get in a lot of trouble. Like it's amazing how much trouble I get in. But I, so I was so I got so frustrated hearing about the death penalty in the last church I served. I said, okay, we're gonna preach. I'm gonna preach about this. We're gonna talk about this as a church. Because um, I had people talk about how if they could change anything about the death penalty, they would make it happen faster, so it didn't cost as much taxpayer money. And so I, I unpacked some of the. The legitimate concerns about the death penalty, in fact, that we've we've murdered a bunch of people who didn't commit the crime. But even yeah, you don't that, get a do over on the death. You don't you exactly. don't get a do over. <laughs> yeah. But for me, like in particular for Christians, we we have lost the irony in the fact that we believe in doing what we once did to Jesus. And, you know, people are kind of like, well, what do you mean? I was like, Jesus died because of capital punishment. He died because of the death penalty. If Jesus had been here, uh, you know. 
150 years ago, we wouldn't have a cross in our sanctuaries. We'd have a hangman's noose. Yep. If he if he were here 70 years ago, we wouldn't have a cross. We'd have an electric chair. And if he came today, we wouldn't have a cross. We'd have a hypodermic needle. And that you wouldn't believe how many people were pissed by that. And I was kind of like, I, I don't I, I can't like sugarcoat the cross for you. But we've done it to ourselves because it looks so nice above the altar. But this is, you know, we this don't is remember why, that it's an instrument of death. But this is why they we we pay people like you right and congregations from from illustrious institutions like Duke to tell people that the stuff doesn't mean what it says. <laughs> Wait, you're supposed, <laughs> you're supposed to tell us it says something that makes us feel better than that. Yeah, but that's like that's about that's this whole thing from 1 Corinthians though. Like the message of the cross is foolishness if we forget that it's the message of death. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because that's the like prerequisite for being a Christian, right? You just have to be dead. Like you have to realize yeah. that you're dead and stop. Like that, like the, like the, the, the means of God procuring salvation is not something like spectacular, like a Homeric, like effort of Hercules or something. It's just mm-hmm. dying. Yeah. It's the most passive thing. Yeah. It's really interesting on the Calvin, um, Center for Preaching Excellence, which has lectionary commentaries every week. Um, it's really good. Scott Hosey, who's I think the chaplain at Calvin College, um, or something, he says this, yes, yes, this Jesus person has been saying this stuff all along, but it was only at the end, only when he accomplished all salvation by dying on a cross, that it became crystal clear that God all along had been truly serious about the best things coming from the least likely places. It was mm-hmm. only when an instrument of cruel execution became somehow the gateway to real and eternal life that we recognize the things of God. This is also why, as Paul points out, that people like the Corinthians themselves were God's kind of people. They had not been power brokers in Corinth, not celebrities, not highly touted scholars, not the beautiful people gracing the covers of magazines. No, they had been simple, ordinary folks looked down on by the world, despised by the power elite for the way they dressed and off-the-rack attire from pennies, for the crudeness of their vocabulary, for the modesty of their single-story little cracker box houses, or their $15 super clip haircuts. But guess what? Paul says that makes you unlikely people a perfect fit for God's unlikely gospel of hope that centers on an old rugged cross. That makes you beatitude grade people, superstars in the eyes of God, weaklings and earthen vessels containing all the power there is in God's good creation. That makes you grace people. And that's pretty good. Yeah. They, I mean, I think that's, yeah, it's, maybe I'll link to that in the show notes, but um, it, it's, yeah, I mean, I think that's a powerful picture. Uh, and, and it's interesting that that's, Paul has to remind them of that. Like the, the means to their own growth. It's it's like the gospel is not uh, the ABCs of the Christian faith. It's the A to Z. It's revisiting the mm-hmm. cross, like death and resurrection again and again that leads to the higher mm-hmm. and deeper, I think. Yeah, I, I, I like this idea about God destroying the wisdom of the wise because today— you know, when we when we think about like who are who is it that we're trying to emulate, uh, we tend to think about these people in places of power and privilege, and 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 so the world might say that's the that's the wisdom that you know earn all you can, save all you can, so that you can be powerful and wealthy. And when you think about like what the Decalogue says, you shall have no other gods before me. Like the wisdom of the world says, there are a ton of other gods you can worship. Yeah, uh, and God's God is in the is in the work of destroying those idols. Speaking of destruction, let's go to John 2. Jesus, Jesus, this is, uh, I guess you could call it, you know, if there's baby Jesus, you know, I love baby. This is uh, kind of whoop-ass Jesus. 
right? Here we have the, the Passover, the Jews was near, and Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, and he makes a whip of cords, and he drives everybody out. And what's interesting, too, is that in John, he notes, like, John notes, and after this, and, and the after this, the, the preceding event is the wedding at Cana. Mm-hmm. Right. And and so it's it's very it's two interesting pictures of Jesus. Back to back. Yeah. One, it seems like he's he's adding, right? He's he he's he's bringing something from nothing and, and, and you know, creating abundance. This it seems like his presence involves subtraction or taking away. Yeah, I I am a big fan of the wonderful uh rock musical Jesus Christ Superstar. And I think I know every word to every song from Jesus Christ Superstar. I'm a little worried about the live version that's going to be coming out this year. But nevertheless, the scene of uh, turning the tables over in Jesus Christ Superstar, the film uh, recorded in the 70s, is pretty incredible. Have you ever seen it? I have. It's been a long time, though. It's been. I, I need to so, watch it again. So the one of the things I really like about it is like we, when we read this, in the temple he found people selling cattle and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. In the film, he walks in and they're selling weapons uh, like, you know, assault rifles and there's prostitutes and they're – I mean, it, it's a, a much sort of broader vision of um, being – you know, having the, the temple uh, made a mockery of. And you can just see Jesus' anger and uh, turning the tables over. Yeah, I I want to like I want to every year when this text is read, I want to set up stuff in the sanctuary and destroy it. <laughs> You're not a sentimental guy. That's what I like. No, I just like freaking people out. I've done that. I took all of our folding tables and I put them around the altar and I told this and I just in the middle of the sermon walked down to them and picked them up and threw them. Like picked them up over my head and threw them as far as I could uh and broke some and messed up some of our pews, but I don't think people have ever forgotten it. Yeah, I wouldn't forget that. No. I mean, how do you forget I, that? I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's epic. Yep, our, our pastor had an episode in church. Exactly. Through Fold- he wanted to go WWE on us. It, it's interesting, right. too, like, w- what I find that um, you, this is like a, I mean, some people say that, that John's Gospels is, is written with these kind of almost like Gentile sort of not, not, not like responding to sort of Hellenistic mystic concerns. But Benedict Sixteenth in his Jesus books, he says, actually, no, it's a temple gospel, which is why Jesus goes to Jerusalem mm-hmm. three times. And he actually argues that James and John, there's a Zebedee that was one of the priestly people that some German historian dug up. And he, he actually thinks that the beloved disciple, there might be some Johannine stuff at the heart of this and that he, he, he might've been a priest's son. And that's why yeah. it, more than most of the gospels, the others, there's yeah. this, antagonism with jesus and the temple which is interesting Mm. but the other thing is that you know when he makes this um the greek here i mean the whip out of cords it's actually like it should be translated like rushes right in a rush is a reed a plant at which you make baskets or papyrus so also the this is sort of harawasian angle right like he's said he's just He's got a whip that's like a like a wicker whip. I mean, a paper whip. I mean, mm-hmm. it's so like that's what's interesting. And yet, people still yield to his authority. It's funny because in the wedding of Cana, it's like his authority is masked. And yet, Mary, he says, "Nah, it's not my time." And Mary says, "Go, go, just do what he says." And then they respond. But here, he kind of asserts his authority, and people respond. I mean, it's an interesting mm-hmm. that his lordship kind of takes two different, especially since John has it take place in the beginning of the ministry, whereas. You know, the synoptics have it happen the, the Holy Week. So that he has all these crowds that have started following him. There's all these other people when he turns the tables over in the temple. But here at the beginning, I mean, presumably his his movement has is still in its infancy. 
and yet people respond to him. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting for preaching to note, I think, that wine represents feasting, right? Like, like you know, and, and ba- wedding banquet. Like, you think, you know, the history doesn't end with a bang or a whimper, according to the Bible, but a wedding feast. Mm. And what happens, it's, it's the... Also, it's, you know, in the holy city, there's no temple because God is all in all, right? And, and, there, and, and God is the light, too. So there's all this. So it's funny because one look, there's two different pictures of Jesus, but I think they're pointing to the same thing, right? Mm. The glory presence of God. One symbolized in wine in the wedding feast. The other, you know, saying that, that hey, the real temple, you know, I, I'm going to be the real temple, the, ever, the lasting presence. Like you get the sense that even when they rebuild the temple, you know, after the exile, you know, after Ezekiel has this kind of picture where God says, I'm just going to leave before any, either of us regret, say something we regret, you know, and the glory priest presence leaves the temple, right? Like Elvis has left the building. It seems like Elvis never really came back, but the Shekinah is tabernacling mm. in the person of Jesus. And the, the, the Shekinah, the way to the everlasting temple is, is through the, his body, the temple being broken. Um, mm-hmm. And in that brokenness, the presence of God becomes manifest and whole. Yeah. I, yeah. That's, that's interesting. I, I've always been struck by the fact that, like, when you if you just read this scripture in isolation, you can think, "Gosh, they were making they had they had made the father's house into a marketplace. How dare they?" But like, scripture actually kind of says that they're supposed to do this because the Jews were supposed to travel to Jerusalem and they were supposed to have untainted doves, and you couldn't bring a dove from Bethlehem because it wasn't going to live all the way till you got there. You know, so you had to you had to buy one there to offer the sacrifice. So. It's it's not that the people in the temple have been doing something wrong. In a sense, they had been commanded by God to do that. Jesus just has a new way of being. And I wonder how much of it also is that in the in the rote system, which you know there is a whole marketplace that builds up around it. That instead of like this, the the way that the Levitical kind of things, you know, the the, the rites are described in the in the First Testament, you kind of go, you give your money, okay, there's the animal priest, boom. So you know that. Yeah, I've covered my bases. I've I've maintained the Ten Commandments, but it's not giving you life. Yeah, there's there's not the sense that this is you know this animal is identified with me, and there's a mm-hmm. and, and that's you know this is again meditation. This is where you can have theology about the cross, but not of the cross. You know where where you daily meditate on his dying um, that you could rise, and he being poor that you could become rich and he you know the lord of of the vine, also the lord of the temple, who becomes our feast in the presence of God. Yeah, and I just, I can't underscore enough the last verse of this John reading, after he was raised from the dead, after he was raised from the dead, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It's it's through the lens of resurrection Amen. that this stuff yeah. comes together, you know? And that's so hard for us because we read everything anachronistically. Um, but like this only becomes intelligible through the lens of the resurrection. Amen. And may you and all our listeners preach resurrection life on the next Lord's Day. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe or pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks again to Taylor for coming on the podcast. Again, you can find him at thinkandletthink.com. And thanks again to you for listening to Snacks. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.